The Money Show. Small business. So what they need now is scalability. I hope he's keeping to listen to Pavlo this evening because our small business focus tonight is all about scaling your business, making your business bigger in a way that you can manage, in a way that you can keep delivering, keep your customers happy, and you don't burn out your team. Talk to me about scaling, Pavlo Fatidis. Usually it's something if you catch a fish, you need to descale. If you've got a kettle and you've got hard water, you need to get the lime out of your kettle or out of your, uh, out of your steam iron. But when it comes to scaling, it's far more positive in a business sense. Yeah, it very much is. And a lot of people talk about scaling um, with a view to think that scaling is growing. But actually, Bruce, scaling is preparing for growth. Um, And that's the truth of it. Scaling is effectively an approach to building a business, a business model itself. In other words, how you assemble the business with all its working parts, how you position the business in the marketplace, and, and how you invest and fund and build the business. And what it does is it creates a platform to support your ability to grow fast, to grow aggressively. And the best measure is that along with the growth in revenue, you grow your profitability. So not the amount of profit, but the profit as a percentage of your revenue. So for example, let's say you're doing 10 million rands worth of revenue and you're producing a million rands worth of profit, you've got a scalable business if you're able to grow it within a short period of time from 10 to, let's say, 20 million rand and generate three and a half or four yeah. million rands worth of profit. So the, the profitability is different to the profit volume or quantum. And it's so important that as you grow your revenue, you do so on a cost base that is moderating and growing at a far smaller or, 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 or um, more restrained growth rate than your revenue. And as the two separate, they create that yawn, that widening gap. And that's the indication of a scalable platform or scalable business. Is every business potentially scalable? I'm trying to think of businesses that probably are not scalable and I'm struggling a little bit. I mean, in in the world of platform businesses, that is the ultimate where you've got tech, you've got technology delivering solutions to people that ultimately is scalable. Microsoft, for for example, with its 365 uh, program, which it has to create once and can sell a billion times around the world. That's scalable. Um, But for, for regular businesses that regular people start, how do we define what is and is not scalable? Well, let me ask you this. Is Nando's scalable? Not in the same way that a piece of software is scalable, but you have to recreate a Nando's in every location. So, it'd be yes, you can get uh, you can get incremental growth, I suppose, but not scalable growth in the same way as a tech company might be able to, right? No, not in the same way as a tech company might be able to. But it doesn't mean that it's not scalable. You can have elements um, added to your business formula, your business model, that improve your scalability. And uh, Bruce, I'm a fundamental believer that most businesses lend themselves towards scalability. I'll tell you the businesses that struggle most with it, however. Um, if you have a mine and you go and you, for five years, you negotiate this big space and you dig this deep hole into the bottom of the ground, <laughs> well, you know, you know what your ore body is. You hopefully have got accurate research and exploration reports and you know more or less that there's a lifetime value to that mine and that business model is pretty much fixed yeah so 
is it scalable? Well, I suppose if we had, if we had to have a really contentious debate on it, maybe elements of it are because once you sink the shafts, once you invest in the above ground and below ground infrastructure, and that all body goes on forever and ever and ever, your upfront costs, sunken costs, excuse the pun, but you would be able to get a long lifetime value on that all body and lifetime value on any revenue opportunities, one of the elements that measure scalability in a business. Yeah, and, and again, I wouldn't typically suggest a mining company is scalable. Uh, you've got to no. be able to take your systems, processes, and people, I suppose, and get them to do, hopefully, you know, not quadruple their workload to get quadruple the revenues through. But you've got to be able to somehow use, again, technologies in best to, to leverage what it is that they do and what they deliver to customers. Uh, well, uh, amongst other things, so so here's another example do you think do you think a law firm is scalable? If you and I, I mean, were lawyers and we started a law firm, think about how we would start. Typically, what would have happened is you might have been with one big corporate firm. I might have been with another corporate sure. firm. We got together and said, "Well, let's start our own firm, and I'll bring one or two of my clients along. You'll bring one of your or one or two of your clients along. Um, let's say, for example, that I've got corporate law skills and you've got uh, family, uh, 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 family-related law skills. Already, we have now created a nice capability in our law firm where we can service multiple clients across these various disciplines. Is that a scalable business? Can it be scaled? Well, you, what you, then you do is you hire a bunch of cheap law graduates and you make them do the work and you make them and then you get into conveyancing and you get into form filling and all of the boring stuff that you don't want to have to do. Yeah, I think you can scale that. And uh, we, we see multinational law firms happening all over the world. Um, some of the biggest law firms in the world have got offices in South Africa and they are, are doing good business. So, yes, they most certainly are scalable. Yeah, and when you look at their numbers, they're growing their revenue, but they're equally growing their operating overheads. And typically, you know, their 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 people costs uh, will increase with every additional dollar of revenue that they add to the top line, which starts to put them in a position where the yawn that we were referring to earlier, the impressive growth rate in profit before tax is simply not there. So it's one of the biggest challenges that are being faced by professional services businesses. Typically, the service itself is delivered by people, and people can only do so much in so many hours. How do you create scale there? And there's a great example of this, Bruce. If you get your positioning right in professional services, and you don't try and be an everything to anyone, anywhere, anyhow, all the time, every time law firm, where you have the smorgasbord of services, and you claim that you've got capability across all the possible disciplines in the legal environment. Well, then you're only going to grow to the extent that you have the right people in the right place, anytime, every time, each time, all the time. And you're going to perhaps get your business, grow your business. You might well be able to grow your revenue. Your quantum of profit will grow, but your profitability is unlikely to grow. So consider that example versus an example of and I'm so sorry to bring this as the firm um, that I had some experience with. It was it, it was a fascinating study. They had started as this smorgasbord of law services. And the people who'd started it were getting sick and tired of all the hard work and effort that they had to put into it. 
And every time they grew, they had more people. And every time they had more people, they had more problems and more challenges and more this, more this, more this. They were fed up. They said, we want to build a scalable law firm. The starting point was for them to make a hard call in this example of which discipline of law they wanted to focus on. And it was a law practice that had initially started in family law. And they opted, based out of the U.S., that they were going to become specialists in divorce divorce law specifically. In doing so, they then looked very hard and deep into what is their history in divorce law. And what they discovered, Bruce, is that there's a seven-year itch in a marriage and there's a midlife crisis in a marriage. And those are the two points in time when by far the majority of divorce cases they had uh, serviced um, found populations. So with that, they were able to position their business specifically using all the criteria that caused the seven-year itch and all the criteria that caused the midlife crisis to locate into those two communities, typically seven years after marriage and midlife crisis marriages, their service per se. And through that, they achieved one of the hardest to achieve things. And that is they scaled the front end of their business. They were able to create a brand that sat neatly and resonated with people who found themselves in the seven-year itch and the midlife crisis. It was the beginning of scaling that particular business <laughs> that before had no possibility of scaling. So this week's Genius Podcast episode, episode seven, it is the story of uh, an architectural firm called Sayota. And they've achieved scale. And they achieved scale through very, very similar means because they were doing the full-service architectural thing where you go and you see the client and they say, we'd like three windows and 18 doors and we'd like a cellar that must be on the, on the roof and you know, all of the usual demands that clients make of architects. And the, the architects would go off and draw the pictures and come back and then change the pictures and then go to the council and get the permissions and all of the stuff that has to be done in the architectural process. They revisited what it was that they were good at. They revisited what it was that they did best. And they worked out that what they did best was if there are five stages in architecture, they best at stages one and two. Um, and mm. that is the conceptualization and design. And then they let somebody else do all of that. So instead of then doing 10 projects each a year for the, for the senior architects within the firm, they suddenly could do multiples of that. And these guys are delivering a team of, you know, probably 200 designers and then 200 other staff within this organization, hundreds of projects in 90 different countries on all six continents. And just the, the, the level of detail and the depth of thought that has gone into creating what was previously an architectural firm that was doing very, very nicely indeed into this monumental business that is delivering projects everywhere is nothing short of astounding. And, you know, that's the key. That is the key to avoid the tyranny of project-based revenues. Because yep. before that, it's from project to project, job to job. What you learn in one job is unlikely to be repeated in the next job because you're simply chasing projects as opposed to creating a product for a very particular kind of client that can be repeatedly sold. And I'll give you two further great examples in architecture, Bruce. A general construction firm that I had some dealings with in the United States. Now, the United States is an interesting place because it has some of the most terrible weather the moment you move 
a few kilometers north and a few kilometers south from good weather. So yes. <laughs> most of the United States has really harsh weather. And in the northern parts, close to the Canadian border, the temperatures drop to, in winter, minus 18 to minus 30, 35. You then have one month of either spring or autumn. And then you have summer, where it rises up to 30, 35 with humidity at 70, 80%. So 10 months of the year, you have these, this wild weather. It also is a corridor for tornadoes. So all the homes over there have got basements, and basements are essential because if a tornado comes, you need to climb down into that basement and hopefully you won't be sucked up into the heavens and spat out 100, 300 miles away from that location. This particular general construction firm opted to only focus on building basements. They then further opted to narrow that and say they will only build sports-themed basements. <laughs> they then further narrowed and said, we are only going to focus on NBA and NFL basements. And in doing so, they created four designs for NBA, four designs for NFL. They had repeatable drawings, repeatable designs. They their, their construction team, Bruce, knew exactly what to do, how to do it, when to do it, and if to do it. With every subsequent basement, they got better and better. Their supply chain of product became bigger and bigger, and through that, they got better and better discounts. And on top of it, once delivering the basement, they went and they secured first rights to limited edition memorabilia, both from the NFL and the NBA, so that once the basement was built, they had an annuity revenue stream through product. And with that, their revenues grew, their costs marginalized. And I'm arguing it's the most profitable construction firm in the United States today. Amazing. Pavlo Fatidis, thank you. From Auric Business Accelerator, the marvels of looking at your business and thinking about your business differently and scaling it to a point where you are able to have a huge impact, not only in your own home market, but potentially globally.